Well, good morning again. Hope you guys are doing well. Thanks, Byron. I'm glad you're doing well. Yes. We do. You guys have way more energy than first service did. It's all that extra sleep, you people, right? Hey, so uh, like I said before, my name is Craig. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, um, come and say hi after we're done today. I would love to, uh, to get to know you. Um, thanks for coming. Honestly, it means a lot to me that you would choose to come and spend your Sunday morning here with us. Uh, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online, uh, I'm just grateful uh, that we get to be together as a church family and we get to dig into God's word together uh, and learn from him and sit under him and uh, just be drawn to him and to worship him, all right? And so uh, for the last couple of months, we've been in the book of Hebrews. And uh, if you haven't kind of figured out what the whole book of Hebrews is about, um, read the words right there, right? Jesus is better, right? This is literally the whole theme of this book. And so if you show up week after week, that's what you're going to be told, and uh, we're sticking to it, all right? Uh, Jesus is better is the bass drum that we're going to sit and just pound the snot out of for the next, I don't know, till at least the summer, okay? Um, get, get ready. So uh, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to actually look at Hebrews chapter 5, and then mostly in Hebrews chapter 7, all right? And uh, what we've kind of been working our way through is seeing this author looking at a lot of Old Testament stuff, looking at a lot of uh, Old Testament ways, Old Testament uh, words and prophecies and all of these things, and really making the point that Jesus is better. Uh, And so when Pastor Lee kicked off this series several weeks ago, he asked the question, is Jesus better to you, or are there things in your life that you would deem to be better than him? And I think it's a really fair question, and I think it's one that should cause a lot of us to think through uh, our lives and to wrestle through what that actually looks like. And so today, uh, we're going to look at uh, Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 7. We're going to be looking at Jesus being a better priest, okay? Now, even when I say that, you're probably thinking, that has nothing to do with me. And you're wrong, and I'm going to tell you why, all right? So, uh, we're going to jump in, and we're going to be in Hebrews uh, chapter 5, and... There's something that I think most of us need to recognize before we get into this, and that is the author of Hebrews wrestles with the Old Testament in ways that most of us have not, okay? Uh, Which makes reading Hebrews now, 2,000 years later, we read through this and we're like, what is that saying? What does that mean? This makes zero sense to me, okay? And so even as we start digging into some of this stuff, we're going to be talking about orders of priesthoods and tribes and sacrifice and uh, all sorts of stuff, and to you and I, we're like, I don't understand this. Okay, But I don't want you to tune out and say that's not relevant to me because the reality is it's extremely relevant to you. It just looks very different. Okay, And what I mean by that is that uh, we don't have a temple. We don't have priests. We don't have sacrifices. But we're all humans. And so even dating back to the creation of humanity, every single one of us has one thing in common, and it's this. We all need external validation. We need to be told that we are okay, that we are good, that we are loved, that we are right by an external source, namely God. That's how every single one of us was created. That's how we were wired. And so even today, if you would say, you know what, I don't believe in God, I guarantee you live your life looking for external validation from someone or somewhere or something. 
the exact same thing that was happening in the Old Testament. It just looked very, very different. And so when God created Adam and Eve, he placed them in the garden. And I think most of us are like, okay, yeah, he did. And they were naked. We're like, okay, that's weird. They're naked gardeners. Whatever, right? (laughs) Here's the deal. They were naked, but they were clothed in validation by God. They were clothed in his love and his acceptance, and so they knew nothing different. Absolutely nothing different, which made gardening naked totally normal. And so they disobeyed God, and then it says in Genesis that they felt shame and they clothed themselves. You see, up until that point, their uh, validation was coming from God. They received everything from him. Right? Every compliment was from him. Who they were was being defined by him. Their rightness and their position with him was defined by him. They got everything, all of their validation from him. But when they disobeyed God, it said that that broke that relationship, that that validation was no longer in place. And so for the first time, they looked at themselves and said, we're naked and we're shameful because of it. And so literally, for thousands of years, the universal quest of mankind has been to find our validation. It's to find something that takes away our shame. It's looking for something that we can do or something that we can accomplish that will give us goodness and righteousness in the eyes of God, to earn his approval again and to take away our shame. And so even if you don't believe in God, you can look at your life, and for most of your life, I think you've been on a quest to prove yourself to other people. I know I have. Right? You want to know that your life has meaning, right? You don't just want to feel like I'm nothing, You want to be justified. You want to know that your existence hasn't been in vain. You want redemption. And so you start showing off yourself and you're trying to puff yourself up so that other people will think highly of you so that you're getting that validation from someone. Look at how smart I am. Look at how good of a body I have. Look at how insane of an athlete I am. Look at how much money I have. Look at all the places that I've traveled around the world and how broad my worldview is. Man, I'm a really good Christian. I've got a really small carbon footprint. I'm incredibly moral. Whatever it is, you may not believe in God, but you still feel the need to have validation from someone. All you've done is replace God's opinion with the opinion of other people, and those people have become God to you. I mean, have you ever looked for validation in a relationship? boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, friendship. That person defines me. They make me feel okay. Have you ever looked for validation from your kids? Have you ever looked for validation in a performance review? Have you ever looked for validation in how much you get paid? Have you ever looked for validation in your appearance or in what car you drive or in the size of the house that you live in? Your personal accomplishments have become your priest used to establish your worthiness. And the Bible tells us that the reason that we seek for this validation is because we have an inner sense of our separation from God. Every single one of us was literally wired to need validation from him. And once that was broken, we've been craving it ever since. 
And so when we look at the Old Testament and we look at the purpose of the Old Covenant, right, the whole goal was to restore man's relationship with God. If somebody did something wrong, they needed to make a sacrifice to atone for that. Why? So that their relationship with God would be restored. And it's easy to look at this whole sacrificial system and think, man, God's mean. Like, who does this? Why are they having to slaughter animals and offer sacrifices? And why are they having to do this? Why are they having to do that? All the rules, all the sacrifices, all the do's and the don'ts, hear me in this. This system was put in place by God as an act of grace towards humanity. Because God knew that every single one of us needed validation. And he said, the only way that we can do this is by offering something to cover for your disobedience. Even when we chose to walk away, God said, I'm still going to make a way that you can receive this life source that is found in me. Guys, if every single one of us was created, literally hardwired to find our validation in him, to find our okayness in him, to find our rightness in him, and even though we didn't have to, he chose to make a way to keep that connection available. That's God's grace on humanity. And then we move forward to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and God literally cranks that amp all the way up and just blows us away with his grace. And so what the author of Hebrews is writing in this is just as relevant to us today as it was to the initial readers. Just looks a little different, okay? So now we're actually gonna dig in to Hebrews 5, right? Hebrews 5, 5. It says, in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All right, now, priests were appointed. Okay, this was a position. This wasn't just like a, a, a trade, right? So uh, in the Old Testament, oftentimes, um, you would have a trade, and it would just kind of become the family trade. So uh, if your dad was a fisherman, that meant you would be a fisherman. That meant your kids would be a fisherman. Just because your grandpa was a priest does not mean that you would be a priest. You had to be appointed into that position. And priests came from one particular tribe, from the tribe of Levi, so you had to come from that tribe, and then you had to be selected. You had to be appointed to serve in the role of priest. So not every Levite was a priest, but every priest was a Levite. It's very specific. You had to be appointed, a.k.a. you had to be called by God to be a priest, because priests were a mediator between God and man. Priests would go before God on behalf of man. They would offer sacrifices to God for man. The role of priest was incredibly important in the relationship between God and man. They were the mediator. They were there in between. It was their job to help people write that relationship so they could receive that validation from God. This verse says that Jesus didn't make himself a high priest. He was called to that role by God, meaning... God called his son to serve as a mediator between you and me and himself. Jesus didn't choose to do that. God appointed him to do that. That's grace. And we see by the quotation of the, the Old Testament quotes that are in here. All right, the last one reads, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right? 
Now, uh, most of us that have any kind of history with the Bible, uh, it's pretty easy to look at some stories and we're like, okay, cool, I know the name and I know what they're associated with. All right, so we're going to play a quick game. Uh, Jonah and the whale, yes. Uh, Daniel and the lion's den, yes. Um, David and, okay, Melchizedek and, <laughs> wah, wah, right? Like two people are like, I think I got this down, right? Melchizedek, who is this dude? Let's find out. Hebrews chapter 7, the author is going to start writing about this individual. Verse 1, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Okay, you read that and you're like, interesting, slaughter, something righteous, something Salem, not sure what this all is, right? Melchizedek is mentioned in the Old Testament in two places. The first is found in Genesis 14. Abraham, I think a lot of us know Abraham, he actually goes to rescue uh, his cousin, Lot, who has made some poor decisions and has a bunch of bad dudes that are chasing him down. All right, so Abraham uh, goes and is with his cousin and he ends up defeating these kings, these guys that were pursuing his cousin, and he defeats them in battle. And this was a massive deal because there's no way that Abraham should have been able to do this. And so as soon as this takes place, Abraham is so thankful and so grateful that God delivered him a victory that he says, I need to go to a priest and I need to offer up a tenth of everything I have. This was overflowing out of the heart of Abraham for how good God is for delivering him. And so he goes and he finds a priest by the name of Melchizedek. He offers up a tenth of everything, or the first fruits is where we get the tithe from, right? This isn't an old covenant call uh, that says you have to give. No, this was literally established before the whole old covenant even took place. It was a way of showing gratitude, of showing thankfulness that, you know what, God, you've given me so much out of that, I'm going to give back to you. The best of what I've got, my time, talents, and treasures. And so Abraham is overwhelmed, and, and it says that Melchizedek brought out bread and, and wine, and they shared a meal together, and then he disappears. For about a thousand years until Psalm 110, David uh, is writing this psalm, and he makes a prophecy that says uh, the Messiah would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is what's quoted in Hebrews 5.5. 5. That's it. That's all we know about this guy until now when the author brings him up and we don't know where he came from. We don't know who he descended from. We don't know how he came to know God. We don't know how he was appointed by God as a priest. But we do know, and it, it says in here, we do know that his name means king of righteousness. It comes from the two Hebrew words, Melech and Zedek. Melech meaning king, Zedek meaning righteousness. Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. And on top of that, Melchizedek was the king over the kingdom of Salem, which shares the same root word with shalom in Hebrew meaning peace. So not only is he the king of righteousness, but he is the king over the kingdom of peace. This is the line that Jesus is going to be coming from. I'm going to jump down to verse 11. Verse 11. 
says, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belongs to a different tribe, and uh, no one from that tribe has ever seen the altar. For it was clear that our Lord descended from the tribe of Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses has said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to the ancestry, but on the basis of power of an indestructible life. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Okay, I just read that, and even me, I'm like, huh? There's a lot of words there, right? So here's really surface, surface kind of sky high level, right? There were two orders of priesthood. One was the order of Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses, like Moses taken the people out of Egypt, Moses. His brother Aaron was a priest, and so all of the... uh, priests that came from uh, the line of Aaron, they were the priests for the Jewish people. They were the priests of the Israelites. We see that Melchizedek was outside of the people of Israel. So you have uh, the priests that came from the line of Aaron, they were Jewish. You had Melchizedek, the only priest who was outside of that. They're saying this is where Jesus is coming from, outside of the Jewish people. And God had established things within the people of Israel so that different tribes had different responsibilities, okay? There were 12 sons of Israel that became 12 tribes of Israel. So you had the tribe of Levi. This is where all of the priests came out of. And then you had the tribe of Judah. This is where all of the kings came out of. And what's interesting is that Melchizedek was a king and a priest, which no one else in the Old Testament was was these two things. You would never have a king and a priest together. They would never be combined because they were two totally separate offices. You see, a king would represent God to the people, whereas a priest would represent the people to God. A king was a person of truth. He was a judge. He was a lawgiver. He was all about justice. But the priest was a person of tears. They were a, a friend, a counselor. They were sympathetic in your weakness. These two offices were never combined. I've never either seen on TV or in person been in a courtroom where the judge is hammering out, here's justice, here's what's happening, and then walk down and come sit next to you and cry with you. How goofy would that be? I just handed you your sentence, now let me weep with you because it's terrible. That doesn't happen, right? These are two totally separate offices except for Melchizedek. He was the exception until Jesus So we see that Jesus comes from the line of Judah, meaning Jesus comes from the line of kings. So if Jesus is a king, and we read earlier that he was appointed to be a priest, how on earth can Jesus rule with perfect justice while being sympathetic in our weakness? How? Like how can God be just and yet love and be close to us who have committed many acts of injustice? Like it just doesn't line up. And the answer is the cross. 
The cross is where the absolute justice of God meets the fullness of his mercy. The debt to God our King was paid in full by God the Son so that we can now relate to him in mercy and acceptance without compromising his justice at all. This is insane. Verse 23. It says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he is a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. I don't know if you've picked up on this, but the author of Hebrews has been building this case that Jesus is a better priest. There's a lot of limitations to these priests under the line of Aaron. All other priests that come from the line of Aaron, they were all Jewish, meaning they could only represent other Jews. Melchizedek has no genealogy, and since Jesus comes from the order of Melchizedek, he can literally represent anyone. He can mediate on behalf of anyone. This means that Jesus can save anybody, anywhere. Jesus didn't die for a certain type of person. The cross is sufficient for all sinners of all types. You included. Me included. In the line of Aaron, all other priests, they had their own sins to deal with. So if I went to a priest and I said, hey, here's what I did. I stole from my neighbor. Here's the sacrifice that I'm bringing. The priest would say, okay, cool. I'm glad you brought that to me. I got to go deal with my stuff first. And then I'll get to covering for your stuff. Because Jesus was sinless, he has none of his own to worry about. Which means his attention's on you. It's beautiful. Jesus never sinned, so he doesn't have to regularly sacrifice for himself. In the line of Aaron, all of the other priests, they would die, right? All of us are going to. We're human. They literally would die out of being able to be a priest. Jesus defeated death. He's superior to all of them. A priest could serve as a high priest from the age of 25 to 50. And once you hit that point, you are out. Jesus' age never matters. He's never going to die. He's superior. I love this. Verse 24, it says, He is living forever to intercede for us. Jesus Christ is alive today. And he's interceding on your behalf right now. Now, even as I say that, I think to myself, that sounds cool, but what does that mean? You know, I think a lot of us have this kind of um, legal, well, I'm not going to say a lot of people. I do. I've watched way too much Suits, okay? Uh, I've seen way too many courtroom shows, so I have this idea that Jesus is my public defender and that God is sitting on the throne with a gavel just all right, this dude's back in here again. All right, Jesus, tell me that I should just be lenient. Tell me about him, right? And so Jesus pulls out my big manila folder that's like this big and slams it on the desk and is like, 
yeah, he's back for the 491st time, and it's the exact same thing. He's a little slow. We just be gracious to him. That's our weak version of intercession. Now, Jesus is pulling out that big old folder. He's slamming it on the table, and he said, yeah, you're right. He's in here for the 491st time. He's guilty. I want justice. But that very justice that I'm calling for, uh, I actually paid the penalty for that when I died on the cross. So it would be unjust for you to punish him again. Jesus interceding on your behalf is not Jesus asking for leniency on your behalf. He's asking for justice and then pointing to the work that he's already done for you. Jesus is alive today and he's interceding on your behalf right now. Asking that justice be done and pointing to the work that he's already done for you. This is beautiful. Verse 27 says, Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself up. Guys, it's done. It's done. It's a gift and it's available to you. And you don't have to prove yourself to God. You don't have to behave your way to God. You just have to believe that Jesus did that for you. That Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins and that he rose from the dead. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the Christian confession that Jesus is Lord. So I think after walking through this, we're now going to dig into what Greg came out and read this morning. So it provides a ton of clarity. Verse 14, Hebrews 4, 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's alive. He's there right now. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession that Jesus is Lord. That's our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. That's my high priest. That's your high priest. Jesus is a better priest. Jesus is a better Melchizedek. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being our priest. Jesus, thank you for being our king. That is our priest and our king, that you can stand for justice for what is right and pure and holy, and at the same time, you can sympathetically sit with us. Father, thank you for the order of Melchizedek that Jesus could follow this order, that salvation is available to all people at all times because of it. And I pray for those that have never made a confession that Jesus is Lord, that you would continue to soften their hearts, that you would draw them to you, and that they would experience your grace and the freedom that comes from it. Thank you that you live to intercede for us, 
In your precious and holy name, amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession that Jesus is Lord. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Amen. Man, it's been awesome being with you guys this morning. Thank you. If you guys would be uh, willing to help stack some chairs, I'll see you guys next week.